strange stories of peculiar people and extraordinary events throughout history. This is Notorious Narratives. Hi, and welcome to Notorious Narratives. I'm Robin. And I'm Jen. And today we are going to talk about the chemist's war. Like, as in chemists, like beakers and Bunsen burners? Maybe. Okay. So I'm going to tell you a little story. All right? I love stories. Picture this. It was Christmas Eve, 1926. The streets were glittered with snow and lights when the man that was afraid of Santa Claus stumbled into the emergency room at New York City's Bellevue Hospital. He was flushed, gasping with fear, saying that Santa Claus was just behind him swinging a baseball bat. I believe everything about this. <laughs> I know the neighborhood Bellevue is in, and even mm-hmm. in the 20s, I'm sure, there were some rapscallions about. Some I've just been really dying to say rapscallion. Hooligans, right? So before hospital staff realized how sick he was, the alcohol-induced hallucination was just a symptom, and the man died. So did another party-goer, and another, and another. And as dusk fell on Christmas, the hospital staff tallied up more than 60 people made desperately ill by alcohol, and eight of them died from it. Holy shit. Within the next two days, yet another 23 people died in the city from celebrating the season. I mean... This is like the worst kind of party. (laughs) Worst Christmas ever. I know. Ugh. It's like the worst frat party. So doctors were accustomed to alcohol poisoning by then, the routine of life in the Prohibition era. So the bootlegged whiskeys and so-called gins often made people sick. The liquor produced in hidden stills frequently came tainted with metals and other impurities. But this outbreak was bizarrely different. The deaths, as investigators would shortly realize, came courtesy of the U.S. government. What? Dun, dun, dun. I love that, like, alcohol poisoning, which is basically what we say today. We say that we have alcohol poisoning when we're just really fucking hungover. Mm-hmm. But the alcohol poisoning was like a, a legitimate legit thing when alcohol was actually poison. Yep. So frustrated that the people continue to consume so much alcohol, even after it was banned, federal officials had decided to try a different kind of enforcement. They ordered the poisoning of industrial alcohols manufactured in the United States. So products regularly stolen by bootleggers and resold as drinkable spirits. The idea was to scare people into giving up the illicit drinking. Instead, by the time prohibition ended in 1933, the federal poisoning program, by some estimates, had killed at least 10,000 people. 10,000 people. 10,000 people, yeah. So the government is poisoning the industrial alcohol. On purpose. That people are using mm-hmm. to make. So but the thing is, though, is that the bootleggers, the the product that they would steal or make or any type of um, any type of inventory that they were able to grab, they actually filtered it and did what they can to make it drinkable so they can sell it. But like, even, so you're talking about like rubbing alcohol. You're talking about like I'm talking about a lot of stuff. I'll get into the actual chemicals that were involved, mm-hmm. but. If anything, the U.S. government was trying to poison you. The bootleggers were actually trying to save you. They wanted a drinkable product to sell, so they were trying to do their best to take out all those toxins and sell it. So the best way to go about it was to drink the alcohol that was illegal. I do. So you were safer if you drank bootlegged alcohol versus Mm -hmm. buying industrial alcohol and drinking it because the industrial alcohol— Definitely poisoned by the government, probably going to kill you if you drink it in any quantity. But the bootleggers took that alcohol and tried to turn it and add things into it. So it cut it and tried to take the toxins out so that it was safer. Mm-hmm. So you're safer 
Yes. But it's funny because even this industrial, even this industrial alcohol was also illegal. Yeah. So it's like kind of. Well, it's illegal to drink it. And if you're not in industry, you probably shouldn't have industrial grade alcohol. Exactly. But they're still being made. See, I'm just thinking about like a cow shoed bootlegger. (laughs) Yes. Buying moonshine from a cow shoed bootlegger who would be a future NASCAR driver. You know, yeah, so, I mean, the best way to save yourself is to get it from the cheap guy that's selling out of the back of his car in an alley, you know what I mean, instead of going someplace and actually buying it. It is so incredibly rare that purchasing things to consume out of the back of people's cars is safer than it is from buying it at a store. I think in 1926, it was something that was a lot safer than it is in 2018. But here we are. Here we are. Exactly. But so think about that. So 1926 was when that guy stumbled into the Bellevue Hospital. So 1926 to 1933, 10,000 people. I actually think that's kind of few, fewer than, like, less than what I thought. But that's just the ones that they know of. That they know of, that's true. That's not the people that died at their houses that they called, you know, heart failure or cardiac yeah, arrest. or. Because I was reading this, I was like, 10,000, that's it? But you're right, you're right. It's it's what, what was accounted for. It was right. what people knew about why they went to... The doctor. Because they actually showed up at a hospital Mm -hmm. because they were absolutely right. Not doing well. Hi, everybody. I'm Katie Segal. And I'm Kurt Sutter. And welcome to our new podcast called Pi People, Influences, and Experiences. Yes, it's sort of the uh, get to know you at a deeper level, the who, what, when, where, and why you are rather than what it is you do. Absolutely. We're not going to talk too much about what people do. We just want to know about their families, where they come from, you know, what shapes their parenting if they have kids, what shapes their marriages if they're married. We just want to be really nosy. We want to get in there. A deep dive into nature and nurture. And we started it because there are a lot of people that we don't know that we are curious about. And I have no friends, so for me, it's, you know. Trying to get them out of the house. Listen to it on whatever you listen to. (laughs) Podcasts on yeah, podcast your, 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 your podcasting apparatus. Watch it on the YouTube. He's aging himself. So although mostly forgotten today, the chemist's war of prohibition remains one of the strangest and most deadly decisions in America law enforcement history. As one of its most outspoken opponents, Charles Norris, chief medical examiner of New York City during the 1920s, liked to say that it was our national experiment in extermination. That's fucked up. Mm -hmm. But also his name is Charles Norris. Charles Norris. Chuck Norris. I got it. I'm there. Yeah? You with me? Mr. Chuck Norris. Mr. Chuck Norris, medical examiner of New York City. 1920s. 1920s. Just imagine the suits. Imagine the pants. But he had great pants. I'm done. I was going to say, I was going to talk about the hats, but all right, pants are cool. And hats. All the hats. And sock suspenders. Oh. You know he had sock garters. I think that's what they're called, sock garters. I think we should bring this back. I mean, I'm also a huge fan of cufflinks. Mm-hmm. Anyway. So that's our fashion <laughs> um, advice. So so during the Prohibition, an official sense of higher purpose kept the poisoning program in place. As the Chicago Tribune editorialized in 1927, normally no American government would engage in such business. It is only in a curious fanaticism of prohibition that any means, however barbarous, are considered justified. Others, however, accused lawmakers opposed to the poisoning plan of being in cahoots with criminals and argued that bootleggers and their law-breaking alcoholic customers deserved no sympathy. 
it's so messed up because prohibition's so bizarre to me because mm-hmm, me you know there was this like moral stance that people shouldn't be drinking. Sure, got it. Not I don't agree with that, but they did that. But they cut themselves off from a huge tax revenue stream and actually like made the economy worse. Absolutely. There was less jobs in the manufacturing, the transportation. Um, there was lack of jobs in barrel making, um, glass making for bottles, you know, just everything, packaging. And the legitimate everything. tax revenue. Today, when you buy a bottle of alcohol, like some obscene amount of money goes to taxes. Mm-hmm. But just think about all of the outside affiliates this that during, have to make that one bottle. Yeah, but this is like during some of the worst times. Mm-hmm. Or it was actually coming up on the worst times, It's coming suppose. up, yeah, but I mean. It's just weird because they should know better. Like everyone should know better. When you make things illegal, it makes people want to do it more and they'll always find a way and it will only become more and more dangerous Absolutely. for them to do it and crime will crop up around it. Absolutely. Anyway. So the saga began with ratification of the 18th Amendment, which banned the manufacturing, sale, or transportation of alcoholic beverages in the United States. High-minded crusaders and anti-alcohol organizations had helped push the amendment through in 1919, playing on fears of moral decay in a country just emerging from war. The Volstead Act, spelling out the rules of the enforcement, passed shortly after, and prohibition itself went into effect on January 1st, 1920. It's so funny because you see all those pictures of the people who were, like, having the drink, like, right when it happened. Yeah, it's like the end of the 18th of Amendment. It, yeah, I saw It's those. like I remember when I smoked my last cigarette inside With you. of a bar. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> 2005? Oh, around there. But I always think about that's, like, my prohibition. Mm-hmm. Except it wasn't illegal. You just couldn't do it inside anymore. Anyway. Whatever. Mm. Cancer's bad. Don't smoke. Nope. But people continue to drink, and in large quantities. Yes. Alcoholism rates soared during the 1920s, and insurance companies charted the increase at more than 300%. Wow. Speakeasies promptly opened for business. By the decade's end, some 30,000 existed in New York City alone. I think there's still 30,000. I know. (laughs) Street gangs grew into bootlegging, empires built on smuggling, stealing, and manufacturing illegal alcohol— the country's uh, defiant response to new laws shocked those who sincerely and naively believed that the amendment would usher in a new era of upright behavior. Yeah. That was just foolishness. I don't even, whatever. I don't even understand. It's like, literally, people have been drinking since the dawn of time. Yep. Yep. You know, you look into every civilization, prehistoric civilizations. The Bible. Like, you know. Pre-biblical, <laughs> it was like it was like if these people worship this book, yeah. Then you're saying that what they did in this book is is going to be illegal. Then people are going to be like, hell no, sorry, they probably won't say hell, but they would definitely ratify that. Like, yeah. Are you fucking kidding me? Very strange. So rigorous enforcement had managed to slow the smuggling of alcohol from Canada and other countries, but crime syndicates responded by stealing massive quantities of industrial alcohol, using paints and solvents, fuels and medical supplies, and redistilling it. To make it potable. Is it potable or potable? I don't know. It doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. (laughs) Industrial alcohol is basically grain alcohol with some unpleasant chemicals mixed in to render it undrinkable. The U.S. government started requiring this denaturing process in 1906 for manufacturers who wanted to avoid the taxes levied by the potable spirits. Yes. 
the U.S. Treasury Department, charged with overseeing alcohol enforcement, estimated that by the mid-1920s, some 60 million gallons of industrial alcohol were stolen annually to supply the country's drinkers. In response in 1926, President Calvin, Calvin Coolidge's government decided to turn the chemistry as an enforcement tool. Some 70 denaturing formulas existed by the 1920s. Most simply, added poisonous methyl alcohol into the mix. Others used bitter-tasting compounds that were less lethal, designed to make the alcohol taste so awful that it was undrinkable. I mean, you can mix with anything until you make it drinkable. I know. <laughs> Throw some juice. I was like, I've been left with some weird bottles of booze that I've had to mix with, like, Hawaiian punch to, like, make it go. Yeah. You're like, I'm only left with grandma's weird bottle of gin. I can make it happen. Like, it tastes like perfume. Mm -hmm. I can make it happen. Mm -hmm. To sell the stolen industrial alcohol, liquor syndicates employed chemists to renature the products, returning them to a drinkable state. The bootleggers pay their chemists a lot more than the governments did, and they excelled at their job. Stolen and redistilled alcohol became the primary source of liquor in the country, so federal officials ordered manufacturers to make their products far more deadly. By mid nineteen twenty seven, the new denaturing formulas included some notable poisons: kerosene and brucine, it's a plant alkaloid closely related to strivinine. Um, strivinine, maybe. It's a very odd spelling. I was, I was trying to work on this all day. That looks like S-T-R-Y. So, yeah, strychnine. Thank you. Gasoline, benzene, cadmium, iodine, zinc, mercury salts, nicotine, ether, formaldehyde, chloroform, camphor, carb- carbolic acid, and acetone. So 50% of these things will fucking kill you. Mm-hmm. 50% of these things are other drugs. Mm-hmm. So you... Essentially, if you drink this shit, like, you're going to die really fucking high, but you, you'll you also be drunk. Mm-hmm. This is a terrible, terrible way to go. The Treasury Department also demanded more methyl alcohol to be added, up to 10% of the total product. It was a laugh that proved to be the most deadly. Jesus. So the results were immediate, starting with that horrific holiday body count in the closing days of 1926. Public health officials responded with shock. The government knows that it is not stopping drinking by putting poison in the alcohol. The New York City medical examiner, Chuck Norris, <laughs> said as at a hastily organized press conference. And he also said that yet it continues its poisoning processes, heedless of the fact that people determined to drink are daily absorbing that poison. Knowing this is to be true, the, the United States government must be charged with more with the moral responsibility for the deaths that poisoned liquor causes, although it cannot be held legally responsible. So he, this is he's a medical examiner during this time, mm-hmm. and he's calling them out. He's like, these motherfuckers yeah. over here are straight up poisoning people. I have bodies over bodies over bodies of these people dying. Yep, but he and also said like, that it cannot be held. Well, they can't be held legally, legally responsible, responsible because they're drinking it. Yeah. I mean, so the way like that, every every ding dong that drinks Robitussin. I mean, what are you going to do? Well, the thing is, is that if if these people are buying this alcohol, they're buying it illegally. So if you're right. buying it illegally, they can't be at being the producers can't be held responsible of no of course. you drinking it because of you're course, doing it's the same it thing illegally. With, you know, every illegal drug, like exactly, you can't. I mean, you can. It just it's, it's illegal, just, but 
but the government who is doing things quote unquote legally mm-hmm. can't be held responsible for their murders. They're literally just killing people off. Oh, this is gross. I don't like it. So uh, his department issued warnings to citizens detailing the dangers in whiskey circulating in the city. He says uh, practically all the liquor that is sold in New York today is toxic. He publicized every death by alcohol poisoning. He also assigned his toxologist, Alexander Gettler, to analyze confiscated whiskey for poisons. And that long list of toxic materials that I talked about yeah. were in his findings. Fucking Chuck Norris, man. What a cool Norris, dude. Norris, man. Norris also— Saving lives. <laughs> so Norris also condemned the federal program for its disproportionate effect on the country's poorest residents as well. Yeah. Wealthy people, he pointed out, could afford the best whiskey available. Uh-huh. Most of those sickened and dying were those who cannot afford expensive protection and deal in a low-grade <sighs> stuff. It never ceases to amaze me. It's always... it. So, and the numbers were not trivial. In 1926, in New York City, 1,200 were sickened by poisonous alcohol. 400 died. The following year, deaths climbed to 700. These numbers were repeated in cities around the country as public health officials nationwide joined in the angry clamor. Furious anti-prohibition legislators pushed for a halt in the use of the lethal chemistry. Officially, the special denaturing program ended only once the 18th Amendment was repealed in December of 1933. But the chemists' war itself faded away before then. Slowly, the government officials quit talking about it. And when Prohibition ended and Good Green Whiskey reappeared, it was almost as if the craziness of the Prohibition and the poisonous measures taken to enforce it had never even happened. Yeah, this is the first time I've ever heard of this. And I know a lot about the Prohibition. Mm-hmm. Chemist War? You heard about the Chemist War? I mean, maybe I've briefly heard it. But not like, like, the, like the, the shit that went on. Well, yeah. So maybe I've heard of it as a blip in one of the many Instagrams that I follow about weird history or something like that. Mm-hmm. But I never knew the poisons they were using. I didn't know the number of people who were dying. Yeah, the medical examiner or the toxologist. I also certainly didn't realize how upfront they were about what they were doing. You're doing this. You have to stop doing this because people are going to continue to drink. People are going to continue to get it illegally. And you're just going to kill Americans left and right. and Straight up killing people. And 10,000 people, as you said, were recorded. And who knows how many weren't. Yeah. Yeah. And, but what bothers As I'm me, sitting here drinking my wine. <laughs> what bothers me is that even even after the prohibition ended, it this entire chemist war and poisoning kind of just like they kind of made it that it never happened. Of course, okay. because who wants to remember this? I know. I mean, I know. so certainly we are all aware that governments sweep things under the rugs, especially when they're not proud of the things that they've done. Because you can't be proud of that. After no. the fact, once the law has been repealed and it's like, oh, you just killed at least 10,000 people of your own people. And, uh, and you essentially just seven made years now? seven, eight, seven, yeah. eight years happened. Yeah. And they just made it legal again just so they can make money because of the Great Depression. I mean, whatever. Absolutely. Fucking capitalism, man. <laughs> anyway. So that is a story of the chemist war. Just another notorious narrative. Thank you so much for listening. If you're enjoying the podcast, there are a couple of things that you can do to help us out. You can leave a positive review wherever you're listening now. You can also go to patreon.com forward slash notorious narratives, where you can access content that is exclusive for our patrons. And remember, keep it weird and never stop exploring.